Okay, everybody, I know uh, many of you are going to watch this on the playback. You have messaged me, and I, I really do think this is going to stand the test of time as one of a, a really important research reviews we have done uh, because there is some implication directly on behavior and understanding that we can put into practice immediately. So uh, keep in mind, we have done gosh, probably half a dozen, maybe even a full dozen research reviews on various aspects and facets of goal attainment, decision-making, especially under pressure, value alignment, all the things that help propel us toward our goals. Last week, we did the first part of the science of dopamine, and it was discussing how negative consequence or positive promise, the hope of something goal pursuit, how that impacts us. And I think that was a place where it, it, there was there were some points of surprise in in just how uh, the the effort itself is so important and becoming almost aligned in terms of a work ethic value to love the striving. And that's something that's been commonly talked about here in the the most recent couple of years. But also not that, because that's that's where the new wave is going. And as the pendulum has swung, some of the original classic defenders of goal pursuit have said, wait a second, it's not just that. That's important, you know, learning to love that. But also it is still important to have those goals out there, to have something that you're striving for. The promise of that really does still have the most impact. It's almost a, a chronology issue. You have to have something that you're looking forward to, but then it does become the 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 okayness of the day-to-day -day slog to get there. Well, today's a little bit different because we're going to dive into some, some deeper neurochemistry. Uh, and so this is a little bit more of a of a what I would call a traditional study, looking at lab animals and doing some you know, biochemistry analysis, but it's interesting that it was also tied to drug addiction. This was published in the Journal of Obesity, and it's it's a few years old. Uh, but it was it was here because some researchers who look more at at opiates and narcotics and drug addiction were noticing that people who were dieting aggressively, people who were intentionally, you know, you could use the word starving um, or or even just in a position of underweight, being underfed, there were substantial increases in the prevalence of drug addiction. And they thought, man, this this is something. This is something worth looking into. Why is that? So it's coming from a different angle. And you'll see at the end, I extrapolate a few things that I think are maybe novel in terms of, I haven't heard anybody make these types of connections, but I think by the end, you're going to say like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially by your own experience. So first of all, we, we've talked a lot about the mesolimbic you know, dopamine pathway, the entire reward system. I, I love this kind of stuff. Because whether it's a hundred percent understood or not, I think I think it does show some very clear uh, parts of anatomy and functional physiology that can help us. 
if, if we visually see representations of things that are happening, certainly research shows that we are more apt to understand how to control that from a biofeedback mechanism. So, so check this out on the, the brain model to the left. So the, the very left where my cursor is here, the prefrontal cortex, that's the very front of the brain. That's the executive center where we make all of our logical, rational decisions and so forth. Well, then you come down in here to the limbic system, which is the second newest part where we really articulate our emotions and memories and so forth. The hippocampus is back here. The nucleus accumbens is right back here. So between the forebrain and the uh, amygdala and the limbic system right here. And then of course, back here, we have the uh, basal ganglia and the cerebellum, which are movement and, and you know, part of the brain stem. So this is the oldest, what everybody calls the reptilian or lizard brain. So it's just more of the autonomic type responses and processes in the body. So the reason I'm showing you this is, first of all, they, they do discuss some of the anatomy. Um, in previous research reviews, we've talked about the importance of, and I'm going to come back to it today, of values and how people who make decisions almost very quickly and resolutely based on the values they hold. This is who I am. Therefore, this is what I do. In functional MRI studies, those have shown to be really centered right here in the limbic system. The more rational, logical thinking you do in, in an analysis sometimes impedes you making the best decisions, especially when it comes to goal attainment and being aligned with your goals. So I just want to show you, first of all, how the, this web kind of communicates together. And then interestingly, how quick they are, because in the nervous system, there is preferential consideration in the brain, in our brain's response to speed. The motor units, the signals that get there the fastest get get paid attention to the soonest. And therefore, they they preempt other impulses or or. Um, behaviors according to those impulses. So you have right here, I don't think it's a coincidence that the nucleus accumbens is right there at the at the you know junction between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. So again, we're going to come back to maybe what that means uh, here in a little bit. But then on the actual MRI, you see this little pink or red dot here. They know that's where the nucleus accumbens is. All right. So just, just keep that in mind. I'm going to read a couple things in terms of the premise, the dopaminergic projections from the ventral tegmental area to the nucleus accumbens have been implicated in the neural substrate of reinforcement and locomotive behavior. Uh, behavioral reinforcement in animals seems to be facilitated by physiological releases of presynaptic dopamine, reuptake block, or injection of exogenous dopamine in the mesolimbic system. Therefore, some of the reinforcing effects of food and psychoactive substances may be mediated by mesolimbic dopamine. So what they're saying here is basically, this is what dopamine is. This is what it does. We know this from all kinds of study and, and literal decades of, of investigation. So dopamine, in other words, does drive our behaviors toward things, toward reaching goals. Uh, second paragraph here, chronic food deprivation and weight loss can cause dramatic changes in reward-seeking behavior. Individuals without enough to eat or those taking anaerobic, I'm sorry, anorectic substances for weight control 
may be in a state of nutritional deprivation. Combined with body weight reduction, this state results in a high risk of drug addiction. A number of studies with humans and animals during food deprivation have shown that there's a relationship between fasting and increased intake of drugs such as psychostimulants and opiates. The increase in drug taking may reflect a change in basal dopamine release patterns in the nucleus accumbens after chronic food deprivation. That's the word I was searching for earlier, fasting. I said starving, but even just intentional fasting. A uh, former client of mine emailed me the other day and said, hey, is, is fasting three days in a row, 72 hours, okay to do a couple times a month? And I went through some of the research we'd gone through together on different forms of fasting. And I said, well, you know, three days is pretty tough. You know, you're getting into a deeper state of literal starvation, uh, intentional or not. And so some things start to happen differently. And I told him that a, a lot of research does show almost a one meal a day, one day a week fast to be that threshold of you can do this and you get some of these benefits, even that's aggressive, you know, fasting for a full 24 hours without some of the negative effects. Well, we're going to get into some of those negative effects here in uh, what, what I think I, I'll kind of explain the rat comparative model, you know, how that may hold up with, with human trials. But uh, let me let me finish up this next paragraph. Dopamine may not be the only transmitter system that undergoes change after weight loss. For example, food deprivation increases overall tryptophan levels in the rat brain, and this can increase levels of serotonin. Injections of serotonin in medial hypothalamic nuclei suppress carbohydrate intake, food consumption, or even just the anticipation of a meal can elevate extracellular serotonin in the hypothalamus. Thus, serotonin in some brain sites is sensitive to nutritional manipulations. Therefore, serotonin release in the nucleus accumbens might be a response might be a response to food deprivation and could provide an interesting comparison to extracellular dopamine, which is in fact one of the things they studied. They looked at dopamine and um, serotonin. And here's an interesting part that I'm not sure they understood fully before this. This the study was done in 1995. But a lot of people have traditionally coupled things like dopamine and serotonin together, just talking about positive hormone, neurotransmitters in the brain. You know, these things make us feel good for different reasons, very clear different reasons. But they seem to be kind of dumped in together, like we just need more of these things and less of these without really differentiating. And this is one study in particular that really does pull apart how each one of these two neurotransmitters affect the brain and behavior differently. So um, one study was designed, or, or I'm sorry, our study was designed to consider differences in basal extracellular dopamine and serotonin output in the nucleus accumbens of freely moving rats at a normal body weight at reduced body weight following chronic food deprivation and at regained body weight. So they they took 32 rats, and I think it was 32. Let me skip over here to the method. 34, 34 male rats. They surgically grafted tubing into their nucleus accumbens so that they could, um, you know, make changes in, uh, or, or I'm sorry, just just do do tests on the circulating levels of of dopamine and serotonin, and initially what they did was they took these 34 rats. Uh, the ones that were going to be in the test subject, they did that surgery, gave them two weeks to recover. And in that recovery, they let them eat anything they want, just normal moving around. Here's your food. Here's your water. 
Then they did baseline neurochemical sampling. Then they put about half the rats assigned to the dopamine uh, microdialysis. And then half the rats were, um, you know, looking at the, the serotonin microdialysis. So they were, they were comparing these two things and there were seven controls each. So animals that were getting nothing. And then the ones that were, um, dieted down and then studied that way. So here's the, the, one of the first things I looked up that, that caught my eye as I'm looking at research to see, you know, is this completely legit? Is there something that they could have done better? Uh, they reduced the rat's body weight by 20% over seven to 10 days. So the first thing I did was looked at my own weight and thought, man, 20%, that's kind of a lot of body weight. That's a substantial body weight. That would be me losing more than 30 pounds. And they did this in seven to 10 days. But then you look at the fact that a rat typically lives just, just two years, that's their lifespan. And so that kind of weight change, you know, especially per their body size and their metabolic activity level, I'm guessing, I don't know. I, I, I do not do research like this. I'm not uh, an expert in just looking at rat study in correlation to, to human trial, but it seems to be kind of a, a normal average for something they would do. Then they, they retested them. They looked at those circulating dopamine and serotonin levels then over the next seven to 10 days, they allowed them to recover with ad libitum food. So they just, just like all the other rats, they just gave them their normal food intake and then they retested them. Um, so here are the results. And I, and I should have told you ahead of time, this, that there actually was not a, a lot to this, that there were not many moving parts to this study. So it makes it easy for us to get through and I hope to have some really good conversation at the end about what we can extrapolate from this. But dopamine levels decreased in the study group in average to an average of 33 picomoles uh, and recovered to 37, which in comparison to the control groups who were at 150 uh, 268, they looked at the two different groups and the average for one group was 150, the other group was almost 169. So that is about a 70% drop. That's substantial. So just, just to make this as simple as, as possible, just, what was, did we say that was two weeks? Um, or seven to 10 days, just in seven to 10 days, these, these rats lost that weight and they still ate. It wasn't starvation, but it was a pretty solid calorie reduction. And dopamine circulating around the nucleus accumbens, the ventral tegmental area, all that stuff that, that was, um, you know, a 70% drop. That's, that is substantial. Remember dopamine's job is to propel us toward our goals. It what It's what we think is intrinsic motivation. If I feel like a go-getter today and I'm going to do my, my job, I'm going to do all the work that it takes to, to accomplish this goal that's showing motivation. You probably have normal levels of, of dopamine or you're processing it better. Those kind of things. Uptake is, is part of this and uh, sensitivity, receptor site sensitivity. 
So anyway, first off the bat, first result you need to consider right there, 70% drop in dopamine just with, well, I shouldn't say just with seven to 10 days of dieting. It was a substantial diet, 20%. So let's, let's not understate that. But serotonin levels, which aren't associated with goal attainment per se, but more just for happiness in a sense of well-being, those actually elevated. That's that's eyebrow raising in, in my book because I'm not sure in a chronic state of dieting, on first glance, most people would say they feel better, that they feel settled and happy and content. But I would ask on second view of that, maybe you were. We all know that we do automatically start reducing physical activity, which I'm, I'm going to talk about here in the next slide or two. All right. So, so a couple things to consider and, and I want to, I'm going to just hammer home this one point about serotonin because it's going to come up in a, in a few minutes. There may be something to the fact that if we are losing our internal drive, if a calorie deficit makes us feel less inclined to work, and I think most of us who have dieted, like you you know that feeling. It almost takes a little supercharged or external omniscient narrator position of your own will to make yourself do it. This is where that self-talk comes in. I don't feel like doing my workout, but damn it, I, this is my goal. I'm going to do it anyway. And then you're happy you did. But it gets harder and harder and harder sometimes to muster up that's what we think is psychological motivation. I would contend that psychological motivation is very much rooted in the physiological dopamine, which we're seeing here. I, I've never seen a study that has tested this that shows a 70% drop in actual circulating dopamine. That makes a lot of sense as to why we would even see decreases in non-exercise activity and things like that. But for serotonin levels, that's the that's the neurotransmitter that says, hey, man, chill out. Everything's good. Just relax. Be happy. Maybe that's a good thing that makes you feel like, man, I really do need to decrease my physical activity. If I'm not getting enough food here, maybe I need to relax a little bit and burn fewer calories because of stress and anxiety. I mean, you can make a case for either one. And I think these, these researchers really did kind of kind of touch on both. Um, so, so here's what this looks like in graph form. So the left chart is dopamine. So the, the rats that went through the dieting process, obviously, as I said, dropped substantially in, in dopamine, but circulating serotonin actually went up. Um, as I said, never even considered that, didn't know research like this existed to show that correlation. So here's what I want. I have about three or so slides of discussion points, and most of them I'm picking directly from them. But I, I have some of our own um, points of interest, I think, that that as people perhaps dieting and, and moving toward body comp change would, would want to discuss. So the current researchers have expertise in drug addiction. As I mentioned earlier, they have observed that dieting, fasting, underweight subjects are, are more likely to abuse addictive drugs. Here and here's their direct connection. Our findings suggest that drugs of abuse may have altered reinforcing value in fasting animals because they act on the dampened mesolimic dopamine system. And so the 
the decrease in dopamine. So, you know, I'm going to put you back. I'm going to role play again. I'm going to put you back in that position where you're dieting. You're in a calorie deficit. It's been a couple months. You're seeing progress, but you know, it's not fun. You're trudging along. And part of that is because physiologically your dopamine systems are that low. It makes you more prone to impulsive decisions and decisions that would help your brain try to re-elevate dopamine because some of the addictive substances they're talking about, which are amphetamines as well as opiates, they become replacements for dopamine. They give you that supercharged feeling of well-being that you may not be getting from the, the reduction in dopamine. Even though they specifically were looking at why people become addicted to these drugs, I want to branch off for a second and say, wouldn't that make sense that we also make decisions when dieting that we wouldn't normally make because we're we're almost trying to feel something to, to push us forward? We want something to, to, to help us regain that intrinsic motivation. So I'm just curious and keep this in the back of your mind. If there are things that you might have done when dieting that you wouldn't do normally and you're like, wow, where did that come from? Like, I didn't used to do that. Or um, I know in, in psych worlds, they they call it self-soothing. You know, I'll do things because I feel like I need this this better feeling of of well-being and, and being tied to my values. And so we we have behaviors like that. Could could be instead of abusing these drugs of addiction, it could be something like an addiction to shopping where you start doing other things a little bit more compulsively, um, such as over-exercising to try to make up for things. You know, that's a compulsion, but it's an attempt to reestablish that extracellular dopamine. And to the next slide, there are – the thing we have to be careful about, and I say this to you guys um, – over and over and over, biology first, biology first, biology first. Most psychological changes and behaviors are rooted in the biology that's happening there, including neurochemistry. So with these changes, morphological adaptation starts occurring in the brain, the nucleus accumbens, the prefrontal cortex, dopamine pathway. Uh, all of a sudden, you have receptors that are changing in response to these, these increases or decreases. And arousal, because dopamine is one of those things that would help us become more aroused toward our goals, intrinsically motivated goal pursuit, is significantly amplified in these food-deprived animals, these fasting, overdieted animals. Arousal is significantly amplified by the introduction of novel stimuli. That's where that little extra push toward, towards compulsion can come in. When you feel dampened, and that's their word, the mesolimbic reward system is dampened by this reduction in dopamine, you want new things. You, you want to be aroused. You want to be stimulated to go do things, to go have fun, to go you, – you want that hard training workout that you used to have when you weren't dieting. And I think this can tip over to other areas of behavior, including – you know, how you're managing relationships and so forth, maybe your occupation. So at the same time, you, your body, you are doing, even if it's subconscious, you're doing things to try to increase arousal. Well, guess what increases arousal? Stress. 
um, and well, I should say what increases dopamine, stress and other points of arousal. So you you may do things, look for things. Do you remember last week when I said, I think that I have conditioned my brain just to be addicted to dopamine? That could be possibly because of these morphological changes. As a child, when I was rewarded for good grades, or even the own my own psychological pressure when I decided, man, I, I want a different life. I want, I want, I want to have a career I can control and decide that I want to pursue. And so I decided to go into physical therapy and pre-med and nutrition and all these things. And all of a sudden I find myself like constantly in an academic process. You know, I, I would like to think it's all a good positive pursuit, but it could also be considered an addiction if if it was something that I wasn't managing well. But even just my leaning into that kind of pursuit could be based on changes in my brain over time. And now I very simply just love mental stimulation. And I freely admit that. I want mental stimulation. I want mental arousal. I like to read. I like movies. I like good conversation with friends. I like philosophy. I like all those things. And, you know, possibly correlated to the fact that I also was a professional bodybuilder for 20 years, amateur for probably 10 years before that. And so there were these cyclings of food deprivation and so forth. I'm not sure I'm going to draw too many correlations to that. But here's here's the second part of the fact that that we will intentionally start looking for stress and arousal when dopamine is is decreased. Since serotonin is increased, that that is to to their point, an obvious way that the brain is trying to defend itself. The brain is trying to say, okay, we're starving, we're starving, we're starving. This, you know, the brain doesn't, the brain is worried The the autonomic nervous system is saying, man, we need to go out there and hunt. And yet the serotonin part of your brain is saying, hey, man, it's all good. Jesus still loves you. Like, you know, be, be happy, like pick, pick your philosophy, but you know, you just, you just want to think everything's okay. And their point is that that the brain defends against serotonin attenuation even in chronic food deprivation but my contention is maybe it's not even because of it or or even in the midst of it but maybe because of it maybe that is the brain's way to try to calm the situation down just like the brain doesn't like cortisol so that's when you get hunger cues that go off the rails because that's the first way that we can decrease cortisol. Maybe that lack of dopamine is being partially mediated by the brain in terms of the higher serotonin. I'm sorry. Yeah, the higher serotonin. So, so here are a couple of things that I want to put into this as my own personal opinion and analysis superimposed on theirs, which we're really looking at drug addiction. So dopamine decreases when we diet. Dopamine corrective behaviors then increase. We start seeking ways to kind of perk us up and look for that arousal. Dopamine normative behaviors decrease. And so some of the things that we would normally do are all of a sudden kind of pushed to the side. And that, that's, that's again, why this is so tied to addictive behaviors. Uh, right when uh, Kevin jumped on this call, I was listening to a news clip 
in a judge was telling a person who was just convicted of murder and this this person convicted of murder was still denying the crime and saying i'm innocent i'm innocent i would never hurt my wife and the judge said well maybe you wouldn't but this person you have become did like that i i know i know it's your defense sir defendant that that wasn't you but physically it was you you did it but i know even you are having a hard time coming to grips with it because that's not who you ever were but something made you that person and these are the kind of things that happen with brain chemistry and even the judge related it, relayed it related it sorry to this person's uh, opiate addiction this guy literally had an opiate addiction uh so anyway so our, our brain has this normal course of action you know goal pursuit everything is online and, and very normal then we have this dopamine decrease the brain is trying to correct for that serotonin increases to try to keep some of those processes uh, unchanged but to me, especially having my experience in personally dieting and working with thousands of clients over 30 years, that creates a perfect storm for very impulsive decision-making and limbic-based behavior where we resolve. Remember, the nucleus accumbens is right in that junction between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. And, and that's what drug addicts do. And there is a big correlation to dieters. When we look at the rate of recidivism and how many people say, man, I was doing great on my diet, Joe. And then boom, I just crashed. I don't know why I just ate everything. And I had this binge and it just wasn't me. It was crazy. It was like an out-of-body experience. Boom. You know, here is the biochemical explanation for that. Now, is there something we can do? I'm going to put this back to those values-based studies where we know that the people who already have the strongest, dare I say rigid, maybe resolute would be another word, better word, they're very resolute in what they will and won't do. I am a vegan because I will never compromise my perspective with animal cruelty and animal husbandry just for the just for feeding ourselves and so forth. I will never do that. That's my value. I know vegans like that, and they you can't tempt them with a, oh, look at this beautiful roasting chicken leg. Like, don't you want this? They would say, no, get that away from me. Like, that's disgusting. That kind of limbic system value would withstand these kinds of dopamine changes because it's a preset value. Uh, and I think that's where we have to try to get to. And, and that's why so many of our research reviews have have angled in that direction. So I, I think that that's not happen overnight. Now we're getting into the realm of neuroplasticity and so forth. But I think if you could at least start to recognize and visualize some of these things and how they happen in the brain, you can say, wow, okay, that makes sense. Now I know where this happens and there is this chemical and this chemical, and this is research that shows what they are doing and opposing each other. And so therefore... It's going to happen to me. Like when I get these feelings of impulsiveness and when I get these feelings of trying to build my own dopamine levels back up because I'm, I'm actually seeking stress and arousal to do that, then you can say, okay, wait a second. This is what I learned about this. And now I need to, I need to kind of chill out, feel that serotonin that's still there, that well-being and, and reattach myself to those values. My preset values are this. I just need to kind of create a little distance 
realize that this is my body trying to force me into these dopamine corrective behaviors, but I don't have to do it. I can remain vigilant. This is where it becomes very habit-based. I'm going to go drink some water. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to do something, call a friend, just get away from this brain state until it can change a little bit. All right. So that's one of those research reviews I just never thought would be, um, I mean, who knew? going into addiction medicine type stuff, and then you'd find a correlation to something like this. But um, jump in here, Kevin. What do you think? With that last slide, second to last slide, that's exactly what the idea I had in my mind with dopamine decreases, but the increase of corrective or overcompensatory disinhibitory like behaviors as, you know, as far as a you know, bringing it a bit to the realm of nutrition, you know, that's where we can overcompensate or have disinhibit disinhibitions. Yeah. Um, that's where we can have those tendencies to overdo it. Um, however we want to justify it, sometimes it's self-soothing or we perceive it as such, or sometimes it is self-protective or self-sabotaged. It's still just the the ability to pivot is there and primes you, so to speak, now that's in my mind. I was like, mm, "That's I've never thought of that," and I bet that's where you're heading, and that's where it was going. So it's just really cool to see that and just understand it's a negative feedback loop in a way. Like everything else in the body is just incredible, but that's that's what comes to mind. Yeah, it it reminds me. So so much of our understanding we had foreshadowing in the past from from smart people. Like I remember. Nietzsche and then uh, Carl Jung talking about this. And Nietzsche said, maybe even Dostoevsky, uh, I think it was Dostoevsky, even maybe before both of them, who talked about you can give man anything he wants and he's still going to create chaos at some point. Like when a man starts, I think his exact quote was when a man starts getting too much cake, in other words, like he's kind of fat and sassy, he's got everything he wants to the point where he can just sit back and eat cake would have been very, that, that would be a great metaphor in that time in russia and he said they'll still find a way to create chaos and that again is seeking arousal seek, seeking stress and then of course like i said nietzsche and young talked about very similar things you know the, the battle between order and chaos and we want a certain amount of order but then every once in a while we need a little chaos and that's i think this biochemically shows when those real fulcrum points are where you, you can only take so much um, lack of forward movement and dopamine is the hormone that drives, that gets you excited about pursuing something. And when you no longer feel excited about pursuing something and biochemically, you don't even have that support structure to get that. We'll still psychologically find a way to try to stir things up. And a lot of times in these physical states, it's not going to be the right way. Mm. it's just deep like it's it i don't know it's just incredible to think of it from a biomechanical neurotransmitter perspective well i've always maintained that building my career and parts of this industry when i was a career dieter was very helpful every time i was in the middle of a contest prep I had my biggest insights that were, I think, helpful for clients because I'm in it. I'm I'm feeling those things and, and succeeding and failing in different ways. 
And yeah, this is just a good reminder, like drawing back and remembering that, you know, people undergoing this are, are in a battle. There is a certain grace involved because it's, it's easy. And, you know, this is just a, a change talk to give patients, give patients, give clients that, you know, while there are, there, the concerns are valid, the tendencies are there, et cetera. Not saying it's easy to control all the time, but just the fact that there is, there, there are hormonal neurotransmitter responses to what can occur and how you're feeling currently. It, it, it just allows the client to be desensitized to the fact that this is not just unique to you mm. or not a problem that you're, it, um, Um, I'm losing what I want, the term I want to use, but you can overcome it. It's not just uh, you know, damn situation or a, a circumstance that you have just created, but that there is a mechanical issue or biomechanical issue or response, I should say. That now, you know, with that being there, we can we can overcome it. Here are some strategies, or here here's to how to understand it. Just like you know, when we look at weight responses, there's a logical reason for what's going on versus just averting blame or something of that, you know, inner talk. So looking at something like this from a logical objective perspective allows, allows us, or at least that's how I tend to think of things is, okay, here's what's going on. I'm not just, you know, thinking oddly, there is some credibility here and then we can right. hopefully resolve it in the same manner. It also makes me think of, besides my first admonition to just understand that there's this turmoil and that your body is trying to propel you toward a little extra chaos or stress arousal to to correct for dopamine, uh, instead of just taking a step back and trying to get out of that situation, I think it's helpful to lean into it and create it more positively. And I'll give you an example um, th there were times when I, and I still get questions like this all the time with clients, like when's a good time to diet? I had a video chat with a client this morning and, um, I, I always, I always first state, you must have the time. You must have the mental bandwidth and capacity to do this because it takes a lot of work and so forth. But I, the other side of that coin is when you need kind of an anchoring point, this can be helpful. Like I remember in college doing the best during semesters when I was getting ready for a contest prep. And I think that I was actually able to use the dieting process as a stabilizing factor. I had this goal. I really wanted to win this contest. I want to achieve these new benchmarks in my career. And so I had that as an anchor to hold on to. And yet also the chaos of school and the schedule and things like that, that I had to maintain. Uh, but it was, so it was very controlled. I wasn't just letting myself get pulled away into impulsive chaos. It was a controlled process. I knew I was going to be here. I knew the work I was going to be doing. And so that became a good parallel to each other. So, you know, perhaps somebody dieting really aggressively and you've you've heeded my advice to make sure that you have the time and you're not you're not doing too many things in your life but yet you do attach it to something like i'm going to be dieting 
and I'm doing this. Like this is going to take care of that arousal stimulation. I know I have to do this project or I'm doing this. And so that's going to keep me really, it, it's almost like I'm aroused, but that distracts me from the dieting process, if that makes sense. Um, and, and I think that's just another way to look at this as a positive thing, not to just ignore it and control it and try to mitigate it, but say, man, if I know this is going to work in my life like this, how can I best structure my life? As you like to say, um, you know, engineering or scaffolding, you know, something around it. Yeah. And I'm trying to parallel it to something else other than nutrition. It can be done, but I'm just from personal experience, you know, looking at my academic failure, um, that whole process, well, there was a lack of structure in general at first. That's a large portion of why I failed. But creating it certainly was enabled to be successful, but just all of it was novel. So I'm, I was also, it wasn't necessarily that my heaviest, that, well, I was at that time, but I was starting to lose weight. So I'm trying to think if there was impulsivity, and I'm sure there was, but um it's hard to look back 15 years ago of the everyday how things were, but I'm sure there was impulsivity. I didn't, I, was, I mean, rather stable. I may have lost weight, sure, but I was pretty stable for the ending of undergrad years until after that, then things really got drastic in terms of, or just got successful with losing weight, but um, well, that you brought up that point again about novelty because I, I kind of dropped it. In this context, then that it like school for you was a novelty. Like, like I'm like, this is not normal life. And well, I mean, it kind of was, you've been in school, but, but I mean, this, this pursuit was competitive. You had to maintain a certain GPA, you know, not everybody gets accepted. Like there, there were parts of this that were novel to that time in your life of striving for independence as a young adult. And I think that's another great thing to maybe attach to your your dieting process. If you're somebody who's really engaging in body comp change and transformation, you say, okay, you know, maybe I'm going to do this and I'm going to start this new thing that stimulates that that need for novelty. You know, maybe fill in the blank. You could just pick anything. Can't be can't be so overwhelming that it makes dieting hyper stressful. But it's just something new to give yourself as, as a pursuit. You know, it's I mean, goal pursuit is goal pursuit. And if dopamine is down and decreasing, and that's what we need for goal pursuit, then maybe, as I said, as as a parallel, because dieting will become monotonous. It's not. I, I've always said that people who diet the best are the ones who it's their first time, because everything's new. You, you're experiencing it. You're you're not an old curmudgeon in terms of, you know, damn it, I've been here before. I've lost this way before. And here I go again. I'll try this diet instead of that diet. And, you know, it, it's just a rusty routine when it's novel, you're actually, you're actually doing both things. You know, you're pursuing that goal and you're, you're peaking your interest in it. That doesn't always happen for most of us who have done this many, many, many times. And so that's where I think this is a really good comparison and point to pick something else that does satisfy that need that is so novel that it does continue to, to bump your dopamine up as much as you can. You're doing it in a positive, proactive way instead of a negative, reactionary way. 
Yeah, that makes sense. You're going to be more immersed into the experience of what you're be open to learning or be open to learning new things or just the whole experience itself is going to be more exciting. That makes makes a lot of sense for from a student standpoint, especially, but I'm just trying to, I don't, I don't find myself to be, I guess I have, I feel my comparison of serotonin to dopamine is more serotonin in the sense of, I would, I, I'm very cautious to not take on too much because I don't want to take on too much. I don't want that stress when one pursuit is going to be inherently enough or can be enough that I, I'm cautious to not add something else. I don't want that stimulation necessarily. I want to do the opposite. I want to just relax and uh, just recharge rather than be stimulated. And that's another great point. So one of the things I left out, I started creating a side, a slide discussing some of the the challenges. Every study, they say, you know, these were limitations and this is, this is where anybody could rightly, you know, bring up some questions about what we did. And yeah, I mean, like last week's position paper we discussed and they said, you know, we, we kind of treat dopamine as this one thing, like bam, this is the dopaminergic system and it's tentacles into the entire brain. And you could be describing things that are very, very genetic in terms of your own sensitivity to dopamine and serotonin. Uh, there could be hippocampus type, you know, memory attribution to certain things. And so you're, you know, maybe it's not true for everybody, but because of certain memories and experiences for you, it's, it's very heightened. And so it carries more or less weight. So yeah, you bring up a really good point that everything we describe here is not going to land perfectly with everybody. And to that point, then you get the whole continuum of motivation of what what gets people. It's much like last week's talk. You know, you, if they can do something, do something well in one area, but you know, have a difficult of applying the same skills and mechanics to something else. You know, what shouldn't be an issue, be yet it is. And that's I suppose that answers what you're saying there. That it's you know, it's there's a continuum. You can apply it different times, different paces, rates, etc. Um, but I don't know. It's just just there to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. But uh, just just fascinating. For sure, for sure. All right. Well, I will let you guys go with that. And just it it, it it's interesting to me. And and maybe I need to work harder finding some physiology points to to bring to the table. But there's the physiology of nutrition, weight loss, all the things we're trying to accomplish. And we kind of know a lot of those answers. A lot of those epidemiological studies are very clear. Here's what works best. Here's what you can expect. But man, it's all the like how to behavioral stuff that I think we need to really have a a handle on to get us there. So appreciate you guys uh, hanging in there with some of these things. I I think, um, you know, our response is always very favorable when we hit these things in terms of behavior and, and uh, the psych part. But uh, Becky, thank you for jumping in here live. And all you guys who watch this on the playback, we'll see you probably next Friday. I always say that these are almost every Friday because you never know what's going to happen schedule-wise, but we're on a roll. So we'll keep uh, rolling into the year. Have a good weekend, guys.